Chapter Twenty One of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Twenty One. The Great Belmont Park Arrow Meet, which woke New York to aviation in October nineteen ten, was coming to an end. That clever new American flyer Hawk Erickson had won only sixth place in speed but he had won first prize in duration by a flight of nearly six hours, driving round and round and round the pylons, hour on hour, safe and steady as a train, never taking the risk of sensational banking nor spiraling like Johnstone, but amusing himself and breaking the tedium by keeping an eye out on each circuit for a fat woman in a bright lavender topcoat who stood out in the dark line of people that flowed beneath. When he had descended to claim the winner, Thousands of heads turned his way as though on one lever, the pink faces flashing in such October sunshine as had filled the backyard of Oscar Erickson in Jeroleman when a lonely Carl had performed duration feats for a sparrow. That same shy Carl wanted to escape from the newspaper men who came running toward him. He hated their incessant questions, always the same. Were you cold? Could you have stayed up longer? Yet he had seen all New York go mad over aviation, rather over news about aviation. The newspapers had spread over front pages his name and the names of the other flyers. Carl chuckled to himself with bashful awe. Gee, can you beat it? That's me. When he beheld himself, referred to an editorial and interview and picture caption as a superman, a god. He heard crowds rustle. Look, there's Hawk Erickson. As he walked along the barriers, he heard cautious predictions from fellow flyers and loud declarations from outsiders that he was the coming cross-country champion. He was introduced to the mayor of New York, two cabinet members, an assortment of senators, authors, bank presidents, generals, and society railbirds. He regularly escaped from them and their questions to help the brick-necked Hank Odell from the Bagby School who had entered for the meet but smashed up on the first day and never since, had been whistling and working over his machine and encouraging Carl. Good work, bud. You've got them all going. With vast secrecy and a perception that this was twice as stirring as steadily buzzing about his Beloit, he went down to the Bowery and in front of a saloon, where he had worked as a porter four years before, he bought a copy of The Evening World because he knew that on the third page of it was a large picture of him, and a signed interview by a special writer. He peered into the saloon windows to see if Petey McGuff was there, but did not find him. He went to the street on which he had boarded in the hope that he might do something for the girl who had been going wrong. The tenement had been torn down, with blocks of others, to make way for a bridge terminal and he saw the vision of the city's pitiless progress. This quest of old acquaintances made him think of Jeroleman. He informed Gertie Cowles that he was now in the aviation game and everything was going very well. He sent his mother a check for five hundred dollars with awkward words of affection. A greater spiritual adventure was talking for hours over a small table in the basement of the Beverut to Lieutenant Forrest Havland, who was attending the Belmont Park meet as a spectator. Theirs was the talk of tired friends, droning on for a time in amused comment, raising to sudden table-pounding enthusiasm over aviators or explorers, with exclamations of, 
is that the way it struck you too i'm awfully glad to hear you say that because that's just the way i felt about it they leaned back in their chairs and played with spoons and reflectively broke up matches and volubly sketched plans of controls drawing on the tablecloth carl took the sophisticated atmosphere of the Verevrut quite for granted why shouldn't he be there and after the interest in him at the meet it did not hugely abash him to hear a group at the table behind him ejaculate i think that's hawk erickson the aviator yes sir that's who it is finally the gods gave to carl a new mechanic a prince of mechanics martin duckerill martin was a tall thin hatchet-faced tousle-headed slow-spoken irreverent irish yankee from fall river the perfect type of american aviators for while england sends out its stately soldiers of the air and france its short excitable geniuses practically all american aviators and aviation mechanics are either long-faced and lanky like martin dockerill and hank odell or slim good-looking youngsters of the college track team type like carl and forrest haviland martin dockerill ate pumpkin pie with his fingers played marching through georgia on the mouth organ admired burlesque show women in sausage-shaped pink tights and wore ball-bragging socks that always reposed in wrinkles over the top of his black shoes with frayed laces but he probably could build a very decent motor in the dark out of four tin cans and a crowbar in a d nineteen ten he still believed in hell and plush albums but he dreamed of wireless power transmission he was a free and independent american citizen who called the count de lesbitz elisop but he would have gone with carl aeroplaning to the south pole upon five minutes notice four minutes to devote to the motor and one minute to write with purple indelible pencil a postcard to his aunt in fall river he was precise about only two things motor timing and calling himself a mechanician not a mechanic he became very friendly with hank odell helped him repair his broken machine went with him to vaudeville or stood with him before the hangar watching the automobile parties of pretty girls with lordly chaperones that came to call on graham white and drexel some heart winners them guys but i back my boss against them and everybody else hank martin would say the meet was over the aviators were leaving carl said farewell to his new and well-loved friends the pioneers of aviation Latham, Monsiant, leblanc McCurdy, Ely, de Lesseps, Mars, Willard, Drexel, Graham White, Hoxley, and the rest. He was in the afterglow of the meet for with Titherington, the Englishman, and Tad Warren, the Wright Flyer. He was going to race from Belmont Park to New Haven for a ten thousand dollar prize jointly offered by a New Haven millionaire and a New York newspaper. At New Haven, the three competitors were to join with Tony Bean of the Bagby School and Walter McMahonies flying a Curtis in an exhibition meet. Enveloped in baggy overalls over the blue flannel suit which he still wore when flying, Carl was directing Martin Dockerill in changing his spark plugs, which were fouled. About him, the aviators were having their machines packed, laughing, playing tricks on one another. Boys, who were virile men, mechanics in denim, who stammered to the reporters, Oh, well, I, I don't know yet who were for the time more celebrated than roosevelt or harry thaw or bernard shaw or champion jack johnson before nine forty five a m when the race to new haven was scheduled to start the newspapermen gathered 
But there were not many outsiders. Carl felt the lack of the stimulus of thronging devotees. He worked silently and sullenly. It was the morning after. He missed Forrest Havland. He began to be anxious. Could he get off in time? Exactly at 9.45, Titherington made a magnificent start in his Henry Fairman biplane. Carl stared till the machine was a dot in the clouds, then worked feverishly. Tad Warren, the second contestant, was testing out his motor, ready to go. At that moment, Martin Dockerell suggested that the carburetor was dirty. "'I'll fly with her the way she is,' Carl snapped, shivering with the race fever. A cub reporter from the City News Association piped like a fox terrier. "'What time they get off, Hawk?' Ten sharp. No, I mean, what time will you really get off? Carl did not answer. He understood that the reporters were doubtful about him. The youngster from the West, who had been flying for only six months, at last came the inevitable pest. The familiar, suggestive outsider, a well-dressed, well-meaning old boar he was, a complete stranger. He put his podgy hand on Carl's arm and puffed, Well, Hawk, my boy, give us a good flight today. Not but what you're going to have trouble. There's something I want to suggest to you. If you'd use a gyroscope— I'll beat it, snarled Carl. He was ashamed of himself, but more angry than ashamed. He demanded of Martin aside, All righty. Can I fly with the carburetor as she is, eh? All right, boss. Calm down, boss. Calm down. What do you mean? Look here, Hawk. I don't want to butt in. You can have old Martin for a chopping block any time you want to cut wood. But if you don't calm down, you'll get so screwed up with nerves that you won't have any control. Well, come on, boss. Speak pretty. Just keep your shirt on, and I'll hustle like a steam engine. Well, maybe you're right, but these assistant aviators in the crowd get me wild. All right, hooray. Here goes. Say, don't stop for anything after I get off. Leave the boys to pack up, and you hustle over to Sea Cliff for the speedboat. You ought to be in New Haven almost as soon as I am. Calmer now, he peeled off his overalls, drew a wool-lined leather jacket over his coat, climbed into the cockpit, and inspected the indicators. As he was testing the spark, Tad Warren got away. Third and last was Carl. The race fever shook him. He would try to save time like the others. He had planned to fly from Belmont Park across Long Island to Great Neck and cross Long Island Sound where it was very narrow. He studied his maps. By flying across to the vicinity of Hempstead Harbor and making a long diagonal flight over water straight over to Stamford, he would increase the factor of danger but save many miles, and the specifications of the race permitted him to choose any course to New Haven. Thinking only of the new route, Taking time only to nod good-bye to Martin Dickerell and Hank O'Dell, he was off into the air. As the ground dropped beneath him and the green, clean spaces in, in numerous towns of Long Island spread themselves out, he listened to the motor. Its music was clear and strong. Here, at least, the wind was light. He would risk the long overwater flight, very long, they thought, in 1910. In a few minutes he sighted the hills about Roiselin, and began to climb up to three thousand feet. It was very cold, his hands were almost numb on the control. He descended to a thousand feet, but the machine jerked like a canoe shooting rapids, in the gust that swept up from among the hills. 
The landscape rolls swiftly at him over the ends of the wings, now on one side, now on the other, as the machine rolled. His arms were tired with the quick, incessant wing-warping. He rose again. Then he looked at the sound, and came down to three hundred feet, least to lose his way, for the sound was white with fog. No wind out there. The water and cloud blurred together, and the skyline was lost in a mass of somber mist, which ranged from filmy white to the cold, dead gray of old cigar ashes. He wanted to hold back, not dash out into that danger-filled twilight. But already he was roaring over gray-green marshes, then was above fishing-boats that were slowly rocking in water dully opaque as a dim old mirror. He noted two men on a sloop, staring up at him, with foolish, gaping, mist-wet faces. Instantly they were left behind him. He rose to get above the fog. Even the milky, sulky water was lost to sight. He was horribly lonely, abominably lonely. At five hundred feet altitude he was not yet entirely above the fog. Land was blotted out. Above him gray sky and thin-worthing filaments of vapor. Beneath him only the fog-bank, erupting here and there like the unfolding of great white flowers as warm currents of air burst up through the mist-blanket. Completely solitary. All his friends were somewhere far distant, in a place of solid earth and sun-warmed hangars. The whole noble earth had ceased to exist. There was only slaty void, through which he was going on forever. Or perhaps he was not moving, always the same coil of mist about him. He was horribly lonely. He feared that the fog was growing thicker. He studied his compass with straining eyes. He was startled by a gull's plunging up through the mist ahead of him and disappearing. He was the more lonely when it was gone. His eyebrows and cheeks were wet with the steam. Drops of moisture shone desolately on the plains. It was an unhealthy shine. He was horribly lonely. He pictured what would happen if the motor should stop, and he should plunge down through that filmy vapor. His pontoonless, frail monoplane would sink almost at once. It would be cold swimming. How long could he keep up? What chance of being found? He didn't want to fall. Cockpit seemed so safe with its familiar watch and map stand and supporting wires. It was home. The wings stretching out on either side of him seemed comfortably solid, adequate to hold him up. But the body of the machine behind him was only a framework, not even enclosed. And cut in the bottom of the cockpit was a small hole for observing the earth. He could see fog through it in unpleasant contrast to the dull yellow of the cloth sides and bottom. Not before had it daunted him to look down through that hole. Now, however, he kept his eyes away from it, and while he watched the compass and oil gauge, and kept straight course, he was thinking of how nasty it would be to drop, drop down there, and have to swim. It would be horribly lonely swimming about a wrecked monoplane, hearing steamers' foghorns, hopeless and afar. As he thought that, he actually did hear a steamer, hoarsely whistling, and swept above it, irresistibly. He started, his shoulders drooped. More than once he wished that he could have seen Forrest Haviland again before he started. He wished with all the poignancy of a man's affection for a real man, 
that he had told Forrest when they were dining at the Brevoort how happy he was to be with him. He was horribly lonely. He cursed himself for letting his thoughts become thin and damp as the vapor about him. He shrugged his shoulders. He listened thankfully to the steady purr of the engine and the whir of the propeller. He would get across. He ascended, hoping for a glimpse of the shore. The fog-smothered horizon stretched further and further away. He was unspeakably lonely. Through a tear in the mist he saw sunshine reflected from houses on a hill, directly before him, perhaps one mile distant. He shouted. He was nearly across, safe, and the sun was coming out. Two minutes later he was turning north, between the water and a town which his map indicated was Stamford. The houses beneath him seemed companionable, friendly, and the hand-waving crowds and factory whistles gave him raucous greeting. Instantly, now that he knew where he was, the race fever caught him again. Despite the strain of crossing the sound, he would not for anything have come down to rest. He began to wonder now how far ahead of him were Tetherton and Tad Warren. He spied a train running north out of Stamford, swung over above it, and raced with it. The passengers leaned out of the windows. Trainmen hung perilously from the open doors of vestibuled platforms. The engineer tooted his frantic greetings to a fellow mechanic, who above him, in the glorious bird, sent telepathic greetings which the engineer probably never got. The engineer speeded up. The engine puffed out vast feathery plumes of dull black smoke, but he drew away from the train as he neared South Norwalk. He was ascending again when he noticed something that seemed to be a biplane standing in a field a mile away. He came down and circled the field. It was Titherington's foreman biplane. He hoped that the kindly Englishman had not been injured. He met out Titherington, talking to a group about the machine. Relieved, he rose again, amused by the anthill appearance as hundreds of people, like black bugs, ran toward the stalled biplane from neighboring farms and from a trolley car standing in the road. He should not have been amused just then. He was too low. Directly before him was a hillside crowned with trees. He shot above the trees, cold in the stomach, muttering, Gee, that was careless. He sped forward, the race fever again. Could he pass Ted Warren as he had passed Tetherington? He whirled over the town, shivering but happy in the mellow, cool October air, far enough from the water to be out of what fog the brightening sun had left behind. The fields rolled beneath him, so far down that they were turned into continuous and wonderful masses of brown and gold. He sang to himself. He liked Titherington. He was glad that the Englishman had not been injured. But it was good to be second in the race, to have a chance to win a contest, which the whole country was watching, to be dashing into a rosy dawn of fame. But while he sang, he was keeping a tense lookout for Tad Warren. He had to pass him. With the caution of the Scotch-like Norwegian, he had to cloach constantly on the jiggle, with ceaseless adjustments to the wind, which varied constantly as he passed over different sorts of terrain. Once the breeze dropped him sidewise, he shot down to gain momentum, brought her to an even keel, and, as he set her nose up again, laughed boisterously. Never again would he be so splendidly young, never again so splendidly sure of himself and of his medium of expression. He was to gain wisdom, but never to have more joy of the race. He was sure now that he was destined to pass Tad Warren. 
The sun was even brighter, the horizon ever wider, rimming the saucer-shaped earth. When he flew near the sound, he saw that the fog had almost passed. The water was gentle and colored like pearl, lapping the sands, smoking towards the radiant sky. He passed over summer cottages, vacant and asleep, with fantastic holiday roofs of red and green. Gulls soared like flying sickles of silver over the opal sea. Even for the racer there was peace. He made out a mass of rock covered with autumn-hued trees to the left, then a like rock to the right. West and East Rock. New Haven, he cried. The city mapped itself before him like square building blocks on a dark carpet, with railroad and tolly tracks like flashing spiderwebs under the October noon. So he had arrived, then, and he had not caught Tad Warren. He was furious. He circled the city looking for the green, where, in this day before the Aero Club of America battled against over-city flying, he was to land. He saw the Yale campus lazy beneath its elms, its towers and turrets, dreaming of Oxford. His anger left him. He plunged down toward the green, and his heart nearly stopped. The spectators were scattered everywhere. How could he land without crushing someone? With trees to each side and a church in front, he was too far down to rise again, his back pressed against the back of the little seat, and it seemed automatically to be trying to restrain him from this tragic landing. The people were fleeing. In front there was a tiny space, but there was no room to sail horizontally and come down lightly. He shut off his motor and turned the monoplane's nose directly at the earth. She struck hard, bounced a second. Her tail rose, and she started with dreadful deliberateness to turn turtle. With a vault, Carl was out of the cockpit and clear of the machine as she turned over. Oblivious of the clamorous crowd which was pressing in about him, cutting off the light, replacing the clean smell of gasoline in the upper air by the hot odor of many bodies, he examined the monoplane and found that she had merely fractured the propeller and smashed the rudder. Someone was fighting through the crowd to his side. Tony Bean, Tony, the round, polite Mexican from the Bagby School. He was crying, Hombre, what a landing! You have saved lives. Get out of the way, all you people. Carl grinned and said, Good to see you, Tony. What time did Tad Warren get here? Where's... He's not here. What? Huh? How's that? Do I win? That's... I have... He... I hope he hasn't been hurt. Yes, you win. A newspaper man standing beside Tony said, Warren had to come down at great neck. He sprained his shoulder, but that's all. That's good. But you, insisted Tony, aren't you badly jarred, Hawk? Not a bit. The gaping crowd hanging its large collective ear toward the two aviators was shouting, Hooray! He's all right! As their voices rose, Carl became aware that all over the city hundreds of factory whistles and bells were howling their welcome to him, the victor. The police were clearing away for him, as the police captain touched a gold flashing cap to him. Carl remembered how afraid of the police that hobo Slim Erickson had been. Tony and he completed examination of the machine with Tony's mechanican and sent it off to a shop to await Martin Dockerill's arrival by speedboat and racing automobile. Carl went to retrieve congratulations and a check from the prize-giver and a reception by Yale officials on the campus. Before him, along his lane of passage, was a kaleidoscope of hands sticking out from the wall of people, hands that reached out and shook his own, till they were sore, hands that held out pencil and paper 
to beg for an autograph, hands of girls with golden flowers of autumn, hands of dirty, eager, small boys, weaving interminable hands, dizzy with a world peopled only by writhing hands, yet moved by their greeting. He made his way across the green, through Phelps' gateway, and upon the campus. Twisting his cap and wishing that he had taken off his leather flying coat, he stood upon a platform and heard officials congratulating him. The reception was over, but the people did not move, and he was very tired. He whispered to a professor, "'Is that a dormitory there behind us? Can I get into it to get away?' The professor beckoned to one of the collegians and replied, "'I think, Mr. Erickson, if you will step down, they will pass you into Vanderbilt Courtyard by the gate back of us, and you will be able to escape.' Carl trusted himself to the bunch of boys forming behind him and found himself rushed into the comparative quiet of a Tudor courtyard. A charming youngster, hatless and sleek of hair, cried, "'Right this way, Mr. Erickson, up this staircase, over the tower, and we'll give em a slip.' From the roar of voices to the dusky quietude of the hallway was a joyous escape. Suddenly Carl was a youngster, permitted to see Yale, a university so great that from Plato College it had seemed an imperial myth. He stared at the list of room occupants, framed and hung on the first floor. He peeped reverently through an open door at a suite of rooms. He was taken to a room with a large collection of pillows, fire-irons, Morris chairs, sets of books in crushed Levant, tobacco jars and pipes, a restless and boyish room, but a real haven. He stared out upon the campus and saw the crowd stolidly waiting for him. He glanced round at his host and waved his hand depreciatively, then tried to seem really grown up, really like the famous Hawk Erickson. But he wished that Forrest Havlin were there, so that he might marvel. Look at him, will you? Waiting for me. Can you beat it? Some start for my Yale course. In a big chair, with a pipe supplied by the youngster, he shyly tried to talk to a senior in the great world of Yale. He himself had not been able to climb to seniorhood even at Plato, while the odd youngster shyly tried to talk to the great aviator. He picked up a Yale catalogue, and he vaguely ruffled its pages, thinking of the difference between its range of courses and the petty and flexible curriculum of Plato. Out of the pages leaped the name Fraser. He hastily turned back. There it was, Henry Fraser, A.M., Ph.D., assistant professor in English literature. Carl rejoiced boyishly that after his defeat of Plato, Professor Fraser had won to victory. He forgot his own triumph. For a second he longed to call on Fraser and pay his respects. Now, he growled to himself, I've been so busy hiking that I've forgotten what little book-learning I ever had. I'd like to see him, but, by gum, I'm going to begin studying again. Hidden away in the youngster's bedroom for a nap, he dreamed uncomfortably of Fraser and books. That did not keep him from making a good altitude flight at the New Haven meet that afternoon, with his hastily repaired machine and a new propeller. But he thought of new roads for wandering in the land of books, as he sat tired and sleepy, but trying to appear bright and appreciative at the big dinner in his honor, the first sacrificial banquet to which he had been subjected, with earnest gentlemen in evening clothes, glad for an excuse to drink just a little too much champagne with mayors and councilmen and bankers, with the inevitable stories about the man who was accused of stealing umbrellas and about the two skunks on a fence enviously watching a motor-car. 
Equally inevitable were the speeches praising Carl's flight as a remarkable achievement destined to live forever in the annals of sport and heroism and to bring one more glory to the name of our fair city. Carl tried to appear honored, but he was thinking, rats, I'll live in the annals of nothing. Curtis and Brookins and Hawksley have all made longer flights than mine in this country alone, and they're aviators I'm not worthy to fill the gas tanks of. Gee, I'm sleepy. Got to look polite, but I wish I could beat it. Let's see. Now look here, young Carl, starting in tomorrow. You'll begin to read oodles of books. Let's see. I'll start out with forest favorites. The David Cockfield and that book by Wells, Tono Bengay, that's got aerial experiments in it, and Jude the Ob Obscure, I guess it is, and the Damnation of Thernware, wonder what he would damned, and McTeague and Walden and War and Peace and Madame Bovary, and some Turgov and some Balzac, and something more serious. Guess I'll try William James' book on psychology. He bought them all next morning. His other belongings had been suited to rapid transportation, and Martin McDougall grumbled, "'That's a swell line of baggage, all right. One toothbrush, a change of socks, and ninety-seven thousand books.' Two nights later, in a hotel at Portland, Maine, Carl was plowing through the psychology. He hated study. He flipped the pages angrily and ran his fingers through his corn-colored hair. But he sped on, concentrated, stopping only to picture a day when the people who honored him publicly would also know him in private. Somewhere among them, he believed, was the girl with whom he could play. He would meet her at some aerial race, and she would welcome him as eagerly as he welcomed her. Had he, perhaps, already met her? He walked over to the writing-table and scrawled a note to Gertie Cowles, regarding the beauty of the Yale campus. End of chapter 21